Hello and welcome to room 15 of The Reading Room, brought to you from Siren FM. The Reading Room podcast from now on will be available bi-monthly, meaning the second part of our podcast, which is taken from our live radio broadcast, will be available in two weeks' time. Coming up on Room 15, the Reading Room book group discusses The Bees by Carol Ann Duffy. It's like um, language distilled down so that you get a really strong flavour of it. It's like distilling a whiskey down. And we speak to Scotland's best-selling travel writer, Peter Kerr. An agent at the time said, don't sit in your bum and wait for things to happen because they might never happen. What you should do is write fiction because your stuff sounds like fiction anyway. And the Reading Room tea break story, Poor Service, is written by Jim Gotts and read by Jeff Thompson. They had fought in the same campaigns, dodged the same enemy bullets, and the people in charge couldn't even be bothered to carve their names on a stone. And of course we'll have our ever-increasing 101 books to read before you die. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. This is The Reading Room Book Group, and joining me to make some sense of what we've been reading this month is Jill Hart from Waterstones High Street Branch here in Lincoln. Now this month we've been reading The Bees by Carol Ann Duffy, her first collection of new poems as Poet Laureate. The press blurb we've received, along with the review copies, states that The Bees finds Duffy using her full poetic range. There are drinking songs, love poems, and poems to the weather, poems of political anger and her celebrated last post. There are elegies too for beloved friends and most movingly the poet's own mother. And the Guardian have described Carol Ann Duffy as the most humane and accessible poet of our time. Uh, Jill, is that right? I think it's, um, but this particular collection anyway, it's a very domestic collection and I think it's there's something there for everybody. So yes, I think she's somebody that everybody knows, uh, everybody's heard of. She's somebody who's who is accessible to older people, younger people. I think she's a, a very worthy poet laureate, and I think she will hopefully bring a lot of people to poetry. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And you know, I mean, if anyone's seen our website recently, we did our first our first video blog talking about poetry. It's accessibility. Something we talk a lot about here on on the reading room actually is accessibility. I don't want to over overstate it, but it's it's important, you know, to to, to bring people in into into poetry. I think. Now the cover. Let, let's see. we always like to talk about the cover this cover is outstanding it's a lovely little thing isn't it it is yeah and the cover price of of this hardback copy that we've got is is 14.99 and we've been lucky enough to get sent review copies um, but that would that would concern me that would concern me just looking at the size of the book it looks like there's nothing to it however held within it is so much more so much more than uh, than a 500 page book i think yes and i think poetry traditionally is higher price by publishers than than fiction and something that you will read once and dispose of and this is certainly something that you would keep for a lifetime I think this would sit on the shelves and it wouldn't go away so it's very nicely done the paper's good quality I think um, anybody who reads poetry would be very happy to invest in it yeah you get a bookmark as well which is a nice little uh, <laughs> little one of those little tassely ones that goes down that's nice isn't it um, but yeah you're absolutely right I mean one thing when uh, when you and I were discussing bringing our book review down to two people you would say to me Paul you've got to read the books because previously if something hadn't interested me or hadn't grasped me within say the first hundred pages or sometimes less uh, I, I didn't bother reading I said no actually this isn't worth my time with my great big ego um, now this there are some poems in here I've still not read but even when I've read it all 
I still won't have read it all. This will be on my shelf constantly, so I'm not going to give this one away. This is going to come back to me in 10, 15, 20 years. Which is what poetry does exactly. at its best, yes. Exactly. And, and this this is at its best because I, I, I attempted to try and read this, you know, sort of like a, a book. And I, I thought, well, I've got to read this for the for the review. And I went through about the first seven. I thought, well, you know, do you know what? That's enough for me. That's pretty pretty heavy. Uh, and it, it's, it's sort of overloading my, uh, overloading my senses. Uh, and then I started reading it like I should read in it. Uh, and this is the kind of book that you keep around the coffee table, isn't it? I think you can't read poetry, as you say, wall to wall. It doesn't work like that. But it is a lovely book to dip into. And the things that she's covering in it, I mean, there's a lot about family stuff. There's lots about her mother and daughter relationships, sort of both ways. It's got themes of things to do with war. There's the, the famous last post, which is very relevant at the moment. We may talk about that a bit more later. But it's framed by, by this theme of the bees, which is a very domestic thing. And it begins with a poem called Bees. It finishes one called Rare Bee. And it almost frames it. And I sort of went and counted through. I think 14 of the poems have got a reference to bees, even if it's just one little line. And the, the, the thing about things being grounded in domestic riches and a good life being grounded in domestic riches, I think it's a very... I think it was very, very nice. I mean, I'm a gardener. I like all that sort of stuff. Mm. I watched the Doctor Who episode when the bees disappeared and it was the end of the world. You know, bees are important, you know. But it, it I think it's a very well-crafted whole. Yeah, yeah, they are. I, I found the bees' poems welcome, as in it almost strung through a narrative. It's not a narrative, but it's strung through for me a narrative. It's helped me mm. relate to it and helped yes. me, you know, yes. sort of digest it. However, the bee poems are my least favourite poems. They make me think less. They make me... You know, I just I, I, at the moment I'm kind of turned off by them, really. But I still find them a welcome. You know, when I turn a page and I see a poem about a bee, or oh, another one about a bee. I'll come back to that later, perhaps. But they're not just about a bee. Like the last poem in the book, the the one that's a rare bee, it's it's about language, it's about the importance of story and rhythm and rhyme and pace. And it's a wonderful one to, to read out loud and to feel the pace of and to taste the language of. And basically it is about the written word and the importance of story. And the bee is just the, the, the metaphor to get that story across. So, so we, it's all about, it's more than just bees. So so what? I've not, I've just dipped my toe in, yeah, haven't I? I've not. Yeah. I've not dived Try in. Try a few more. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps I need to get on the top yes. board and uh, Try a few more. <laughs> and dive in. Okay, that's that's my mission for for the next month is to uh, to go over the ones I missed out <laughs> and, and look through those. Okay, so looking at uh, at the the size of the book, um, has this been selling well? I think so. She is uh, very very popular, and I think it'll be I think it'll be a lot of Christmas stockings as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a good yeah. uh, good stocking yeah. filler, but no one's going to get yeah. going to get my copy. I'm going to keep hold of it. Yeah. Uh, now, my favourite out of uh, out of here is uh, a poem towards uh, her mother, yeah. uh, Water. Um, now, Jill, if you could uh, read just the first bit for us, please. Your last word was water which I poured into a hospice plastic cup, held to your lips, your small sip, half smile, sigh. Then in the chair beside you fell asleep. Now that, it, it, it continues, that's all we're yes. allowed to read, but it continues and it just, you can, you, you're put in that position and you're put in that and it brings you emotionally into that situation, isn't it? Where, you know, obviously a mother is about to, uh, to pass on. But it's it's not a sad poem. It is a it, it is actually reflecting on on their past relationship, reflecting on the poet's own ongoing relationship with her own child, and bringing of water to somebody to drink, 
when they're thirsty in the night as reassurance. And it's a very, um, although it's about somebody's death, it's a very positive poem, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, as are the other ones that are dealing with those relationships. The one I particularly liked in that, that range was one called Crunch, which is talking about the poet with her 12-year-old daughter. And the story behind the poem is that there's been some burglars have come in before Christmas. They've stolen all their Christmas presents. But at the end of the day, she is watching her daughter playing in the snow. And the the last line, what's for lunch? She bawls. I throw the apple here, happy, here the crunch. And it's, it's just a little small family element within everything else that's going wrong in the world. But that strength of family and family bonds is, is, it's lovely. It's really nice. It is. And, even in the title there, just when you said crunch, it sort of crunch. immediately, yeah, it's a great word and it immediately opens up, you know, sort yeah. of uh, avenues to go down. Now, I, I know some poets we've had in here have, uh, have almost teased uh, people who write the sort of longer works and fiction and novels that, that they say that, you know, they can sum up in a few sentences what novelists take a whole book to do. Uh, what do you think about that? I think that's that's one of the pleasures of poetry. I very much enjoyed going through all the poems in this book this month and just savouring all the words. And it is, it's it's like um, something that's distilled down to language distilled down so that you get a really strong flavour of it. It's like distilling, I suppose, a whiskey down. So you've got a, a very strong but very, uh, very tasty. Uh, and and it's, it's, like, it's like that with words, I think. That's a great analogy, mm. Jill. Uh, but it's time to hear from our regular email reviewer, Cathy from Lincoln. Now, she says, I have a mental block regarding the reading of poetry. So my heart dropped when Paul handed me this book. That's, that's true. It did. She did. She was gracious enough to, not to say it, but, you know, I could tell. Uh, I've have a difficult relationship with reading poetry since my lacklustre education at school made it a chore. I love certain poetry when it's read to me. And I think that is due to the fact that my mother enjoyed it and would start our day spouting the poetry that she loved. So with such conflicting feelings, I approached the beads with some trepidation, and I'm glad to say I was somewhat pleasantly surprised. Caroline Duffy makes poetry look easy. Though the book is titled Bees and their images and symbols are woven throughout the book, she covers many other themes and touches different emotions. I can't say I'm a total convert to poetry, but for me, it's a start. I have two favourites in this book. I liked the last post and enjoyed the idea of poetry telling it backwards. I also liked premonitions. This reminded me of my mother and what a wonderful person she was. I also have to mention the cover, which is a beautiful design of a beehive with a bee at the centre in duck egg blue and gold with its stunning and most important, it matches her decor. Will I rush out and buy another book? Who knows? Watch this space. Now, surely if you were if you were Caroline Duffy and you heard that, you'd sit back and say, job done, wouldn't you? Yes, I think so. That's somebody who is open to poetry more than they were before from the reading of the book that's great yeah yeah absolutely great, yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah i mean when i did give her the book it you know it's oh, cranky what, what are you giving me here paul what what's going on um and i i approached it with i approached yes. it with the same trepidation as you'll see on our our, our, our podcast and our, our video link um it, it's something i'm discovering i think as we've discovered this morning jill you <laughs> you're swimming down the deep end with poetry not really not really well, all right you're in the shallow end uh, yeah, just, just where there's just where maybe. the sign is and the steps are yeah. and i'm just about to take my armbands off i think with it <laughs> Now, it's a long time since I've studied any poetry or or read any poetry other than just in passing and I really enjoyed the experience of doing this. But isn't it, don't you think that's what puts some people off is the, that, that unaccessibility where you have to go and read another book before you're allowed to read this book? But that's one of the pleasures I think. I, I really enjoy the um, getting immersed in something, getting a little bit further into something than just skimming over the surface. And one of the poems that I particularly enjoyed was the one called Parliament. 
and it's one of the ones that is designed towards uh, the environment, talking about environmental issues. And the parliament is not a human parliament, but it's um, the parliament of, of birds. I mean, a parliament is a collective name for rooks or owls. And it is all about birds looking on to see what the humans have done to the planet. And, well, I'll read the first stanza. Then in the writer's wood, every bird with a name in the world crowded the leafless trees, took its turn to whistle or croak. An owl grieved in an oak, a magpie mocked, a rook cursed from a sycamore. The cormorant spoke. Stinking seas below ill winds, nothing swims. A vast plastic soup, thousand miles wide, as long of petroleum crap. And it, it is, this is about the birds commenting on, on what's been done. And so that is it's an interesting message. But what I enjoyed so much about the poem was the, was the changes of rhyme, the changes of rhythm, which vary with each stanza, with each bird that speaks. And just the sheer alliteration, the assonance of the rhymes. There's one line there that is talking about, and Macaw is saying this, and he's talking about nouns I know. Rain, forest, fire, ash, chainsaw, cattle, cocaine, cash, squatters, ranchers, loggers, looters, barons, shooters. And it's just the the taste of the words and the rhythm and the rhyme. And it's a real pleasure. Well, does artist. it come to you immediately? Does the, the rhythm and the rhyme? Or sometimes you have to go back and think, I've, I've I think I've things one. come, you read it and you think, oh, that sounded nice. And you go and have another mouthful and try it again. Mm. I think I tend to refer poetry to taste, and yeah, it's, a good it's, an, it's a good analogy. It's, that. it's almost a bit, almost feels a bit like the Simon Armitage poetry in the rhythm and the flow of it, and that was one I particularly, particularly enjoyed. Well, a couple out of here that I, I really like. Um, the first one I'm going to say, which we won't, we won't dwell on too much, is a, a song called Drams, uh, which is obviously a drinking song, and I've, I've thought about but I didn't get a chance, is to, is to sort of bring... I thought it, it's more of a, a drinking song, so I thought I'd get the guitar out, and maybe, because I was struggling. I was struggling to, you know, sort of make sense of it without that. Um, so maybe that might happen. Maybe we might... Hey, we might record that, Johnny. We could release that as a single. That would uh, uh, go, go down well. But the other one is The Counties, and it's a visit around uh, around the UK, really. Um, and um, she, she writes, but I, I want to write to an Essex girl, greeting her warmly. But I want to write to a Shropshire lad, brave boy, home from the army. And I want to write to the Lincolnshire poacher to hear of his hair. So that was, it, 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 it's just a nice visit around. And every single, well, every every two lines of that puts you in a different place and um, rides on some stereotypes, I suppose, but uh, but not not not, not, not loosely thought of stereotypes. But unlike the, the one that I've just been talking about, it's light, it's got a, a light, more light-hearted feel. It's having a bit of fun with 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 language and with, with the counties. And all those things, isn't it? Yeah. It's easier. And of course, it ends up, again, talking about her own child, ends up with that link, may not never be lost to her, or the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. I see. Which is the rest, reference to Adlestrop by Edward Thomas. Okay. Right, now it's time uh, to uh, to wrap up and uh, with the same question we ask, and I think I know the answer. Jill, would you recommend this book? I would. I thought it was very good. Yeah. I thought it was very good. And just as a, a final word, there's a lovely poem in there that we've mentioned a few times called The Last Post, which with Remembrance Day coming up, uh, the last line is, if poetry could tell it, truly tell it backwards, then it would. And it's a, a brilliant poem. Yeah, yeah, it is much, uh, much written about that. And uh, I'm going to say I'm going to recommend this book. Um, it's it's worth the investment. It's an investment of 15 pounds, but it's worth the investment. It's something to devour, uh, not straight away, uh, but uh, slowly like a nice whiskey.
Oh. Hey, we brought that round again, haven't we? We brought that round again. Now, next month, we're going to be reviewing, uh, reviewing even the IQ84 by uh, Murakami. Now, um, this is a huge book. It's, uh, it's, it actually comes out in three books. We'll be reviewing book one and two, which uh, has been published here. Over a million sold uh, in, in Japan now, and uh, they open bookshops at 12 o'clock at night when it, re- it was published in this country. So a great big deal. This is Tony Hawks, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. The Reading Room's 101 Books to Read Before You Die. Yo, this is the author Abigail Tartellin, and I wrote the book Flick. My favourite book is not the one I'm going to recommend to you today, because everybody would recommend this book. It's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Everybody's read it. Everybody knows about it. It's such an awesome book. And the writer, Hunter S. Thompson, is, I think, the best writer I've ever read. I didn't read that book for ages because everybody had read it and because I'm really stubborn. And then I read it and I was like, okay, yeah, I've caved. So I read all his other books as well. And the one I'm going to recommend to you today is called Rum Diary. It was released in the 90s, but it's actually the first book he wrote and he started at age 22. I know a little bit about this. My first book came out age 23. It's a fantastic book. It's pre-Gonzo, for all of you that know what that means. It's not very like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's more about rum than drugs. And it's it's got the kind of slow, undulating, mildly depressing tones of alcohol. But it's an awesome, awesome book. And it's about this 29-year-old newspaper guy in somewhere in South America. And it's just about his life and growing older and finding out what the world's about. So I would very, very much recommend Rum Diary. I'm Paul Tyler. You're listening to The Reading Room. And we're lucky enough to be nominated for a European Podcast Award uh, in the professional category. Uh, and there's still time to vote. So if you go to our website, readingroom.podbean.com, uh, you can see the link on the right-hand side of the page there. European Podcast Awards uh, takes you straight there. If you voted already, thank you very much. And if you haven't, what are you waiting for? Now it's time for the tea break story this morning. At this time of year, we remember those that gave their lives in the line of duty since World War I. Our tea break story today takes a point of view from an old soldier, thinking about how the survivors will be remembered. Poor Service is written by Jim Gotts and read by Jeff Thompson. The war memorial seemed taller today. Sitting in his wheelchair, the old soldier couldn't quite see the top. Not like all those years past, when he would stand in front of it to attention with his right hand held rigidly against his army beret. He had to sit down nowadays. His legs couldn't hold him up for long, and his breathing wasn't too good either. He was thankful to the social services for giving him the wheelchair. He wouldn't be able to attend the memorial without it. As it was, he had to rely on young Charlie from the nursing home to push him, but Charlie didn't seem to mind and it was only once a year, after all. The vicar finished his address and stepped back amongst the crowd. A young man took his place. He put a bugle to his lips and began to play The Last Post. As he listened to the unsteady notes, the old soldier let his eyes run over the names, etched neatly in columns, shining gold against the dark grey granite. It was a fine memorial. After the war, the council had raised the money specially, with a grant and sponsored events 
to top up the fund. There had been a design competition, and the organising committee had chosen this handsome monument, which sat very nicely among the plain trees in the square. And the names, lots of names. The old soldier could put a face to most of them. They had grown up together in the town. He remembered the days after Dunkirk, when the recruiting sergeants from the regiment came to town and told the young men not to wait for the call-up because they would get better treatment if they enlisted voluntarily. It wasn't true, of course, but everybody believed them, and most of the town's young men signed up then and there. And now they were all gone, either killed in the war or dead later from some other causes. But on this particular day, they were not all being commemorated. Only the men represented by the names inscribed on the monument as having died on active service, endured as reminders to those attending the service. The monument would keep their memory alive for maybe a hundred years or more, while the young men who had served and survived faded from recollection, like mist under a hot sun. Mrs. Clark from the nursing home had done some research and had told him he was the last person left alive who had served in the regiment during the war. The old soldier felt sad, sad for himself and sad for all his old comrades in the regiment who, like him, were forgotten because they did not die at the right time. To the present generation, it was as if they had never existed, never risked their lives in the numbing fear of combat, unable to believe that they would live through it. There was nothing to mark their efforts. It just wasn't fair. They had fought in the same campaigns, dodged the same enemy bullets, trudged the same endless marches with blistered feet, put up with the same rubbish rations, and the people in charge couldn't even be bothered to carve their names on a stone. He could recall very well a phrase his father often used when something bad had happened. I'd be better off dead, he would say, and to the old soldier it seemed that his father could have been right. At least his name would be up there with the others, picked out in gold and gleaming in the sun. That would have been very nice. There was plenty of space on the front of the memorial. That bit near the bottom on the left would have been just a job and low enough for the kids to read it. That would have been very nice too. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Peter Kerr is Scotland's best-selling travel writer. His Mallorcan-based books, including the award-winning Snowball Oranges and Manana Manana, have sold in large numbers and been translated into 11 languages. With a varied career as a farmer, musician, producer and writer, we had plenty to talk about when he attended the World's Words Festival recently, where he was part of a panel talking about travel writing. I was very interested in Peter's move from travel writing to penning fiction, but first I asked him what the trigger was for him to write his first book, Snowball Oranges. We'd been farmers of, of beef and barley in Scotland on a small, smallish scale 
and we were sort of squeezed out by the recession and we stumbled upon a little uh, orange farm in Mallorca and bought it on impulse. Actually we couldn't afford to but we took a chance and did it and spent three years doing that and again we were squeezed out because we were too small when Spain joined the EU. So when we went back to Scotland people used to ask virtually all the same questions, how did you get on with the climate, the language, how did you get on with a different pace of life, how did the kids get on at school and I thought one day well I'll start to write down answers to these things in narrative form. I didn't think it was going to be a book, but two years later it was, it was uh, Snowball Oranges. It took two years to write it and another eight years to find a, a publisher. So this, this new version is the 10th anniversary special edition to mark the 10th anniversary of, of the original publication. Had you put pen to paper with anything previously, any short stories, any poetry? Or? No, not really. Um, I, I've been involved with, with, with writing since, since I left school. When I left school at 18, I, I became uh, an executive officer in the civil service, which I hated. Um, but part of my job in the civil service in the 18 months that I stuck it was actually collecting stats and figures and, and, and converting them into words for the then uh, Minister of Labour, Ted Heath of the Shaking Shoulders. So that was a bit of creative writing, I can tell you. And I've never believed any government figures since because as an 18-year-old making up these important things for the Ministry of Labour, I can tell you that was creative writing. So, but I never realised at the time, it, it was a good grounding. And then I became a musician and there was always things to, to, to write for the band, publicity bits and pieces, uh, sleeve notes for, for records and so on. But I had never never tackled anything as, as ambitious as a book. And when you when you sit down, are you, are you are you good at not procrastinating, not going there? You're very focused. Can you can you sit down and, and just write? We're all a bit lazy, and it's always easy to, to make an excuse to put off till tomorrow. But um, with the first book, there was no pressure because it, it wasn't going to be a book anyway, and, and no publisher had showed interest. So I took my own time. Since Snowball Oranges became fairly successful. The publishers eventually asked for five uh, sequels, one a year. So then the pressure came in, and I, I, that's when you've just got to apply yourself, sit down in front of the computer every day and treat it as a job. As I say, there's always excuses. They call it writer's block. It isn't. It's laziness. <laughs> now, obviously, you believed in it very strongly to chase uh, or to, to seek that first publishing deal for, for so long. For eight years, yeah. Well, the thing is, after you've committed two years of your life to actually writing a book, and you submit it to different agents and publishers, and if, if they don't tell you to, to, to get lost, if they say encouraging things but say, but it's just not for us, but keep trying, well, that gives you encouragement. And then, you know, when, when you spend a year having uh, tried unsuccessfully in a second year, a bit of determination digs in and uh, you just keep at it. And, you, yeah, there are times when you think it's never going to happen, but, but it's like everything else. If you dedicate yourself to the job of, of actually creating the thing, you've then got to dedicate yourself to the job of then getting it published. And once it's published, I believe then you've got to try your best to promote it yeah. by getting out and about and doing book festivals and appearing in libraries and meeting people, getting feedback. Um, some of them say, you know, nice things. And particularly nowadays with Amazon, when, re when readers can make, make their own uh, reviews, it's, it's always uh, encouraging to get the good ones, but you've got to realise you get the bad ones as well. Yeah. You get some stinkers, but that's it. It keeps your feet in the ground. Yeah. So moving uh, from what you would call the, the travel genre, you, you know, yeah. your, your books are always listed under, or your, your first mm -hmm. book's listed under the travel genre, then you moved into, into fiction. Was it a case of, uh, of putting the characters into this setting that you created? Well, uh, those eight years that it took to, to get the first book published, um, an agent at the time said, don't sit in your bum and, and wait for things to happen, because they might never happen. 
what you should do is write fiction, because your stuff sounds like fiction anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so she said, this agent said, try, try your hand at fiction. And I said, what do you suggest? She said, well, detective stories are always popular. And I said, well, I don't read them. She said, that's even better. At least what you do will be original, even if it's rubbish. <laughs> All my stuff is, is laced with humour. Can't help it. That's just how it happens. So I wrote three humour-laced detective stories and a couple of other fictional things, um, which lay in the computer until these non-fiction things had some success. Then a publisher came along and said, have you any fiction things? So that's what I do now. I concentrate on, on fiction. And it's good fun because with the non-fiction things, you, you, you've got to stick to facts. Uh, with fiction stuff, you can, you can let your imagination go and, and have fun. Yeah, I mean, at those points where you're looking at the, the non-fiction work, were you ever tempted to, you know, to distort what was happening because you could, you could perhaps feel a, a good story coming up? Obviously, some, some stories you've got to jazz up a wee bit to make the story entertaining, but as long as the facts are there, you can, you can paint them in, in, in slightly brighter, brighter colours. Yeah, yeah, and your son's here today in Louth. I mean, was there ever a, a, a line to be drawn about writing about your family? What I did was I changed all the names in these books for, for the sake of, um, well, in case they sued me. <laughs> and I, no, I, I just thought it would, it would protect their privacy. But as it turns out, they, they, they don't care because word soon gets out. But, but that, that's family and that's one thing. But the other, the other characters, the local people, our neighbours in New York, I changed their names for, for that reason, to, to protect their privacy. And, um, and, and that stands to, the, to this day. I've never really revealed their full names. Having said that, people actually go across to Mallorca and, and find out where we lived really? and have a snoop about and talk, <laughs> and talk to the neighbours and all that. And, and so far, there, there haven't been any complaints from, from the folks. Wait, is there anything, uh, that when you came back to Scotland, is there, is, is there something that, that the British can learn from the Spanish? What, what did you bring back? Well, the, the pace of life, obviously, that was, that was something that we had to get used to and it took, it took a while to get into that tranquilo, um, manana, manana uh, mindset uh, because... You, you feel guilty at first, you know, I should be doing this today and I should have done it an hour ago. And then the local people say, just be tranquilo, you know, tomorrow will be fine, mañana's okay, it'll all be fine. And so once, once we settled into that, it was fantastic. And in any case, the climate dictates a slow way of life. Coming back from Spain three years later, it was even more difficult then to, to, to pick up this health or leather way of life. That was, you know, that, that, that was difficult. In fact, I don't think I've managed it yet. <laughs> now, I'd like to look a little bit further back uh, into your, your, your period as a, as a jazz musician and certainly yeah. a, a producer. And, and the people that you've worked with, uh, and, and if I mention some names, Shirley Bassey, Morecambe & Wise, Brenda Lee, Petula Clark, Dusty Springfield, and then, of course, uh, Norman Wisdom and the Beatles. Now, I've written a name on the other side of this bit of paper um, because I wanted to know which, which was your favourite out of that, 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 that list to work with. People would guess that, that it would be Morecambe & Wise. Mm. And, I, yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, that possibly they might have been at least a, an equal favourite, but D Dusty Springfield was, was a nice person. Yeah. And if I turn the page over, that there you go. Is, is the name I have on yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. She was a character, you know, because success didn't come easily to her. She had been on the road with her, with her brother, the Springfields group, for years before that, doing all sorts of little venues up and down Britain. I remember one place up in Elgin. Uh, in the north of Scotland that we went with a band one winter's night and uh, the night before the Springfields had been there and they had drawn a, a, a crowd of about ten uh, you know so Dusty she served her apprenticeship alright and, and it showed because a, a, after she she reached the, the, the pinnacle of her success she was still down to earth and uh, one of the boys yeah. really one of the boys. Uh, so what are you working on Working on now? Is it a historic novel? Yes. It's taken, taken me three years, this one. 
so I'm actually going backwards instead of forwards. But it's, it's set in New York. It's called Song of the Eight Winds. And it's set in New York in the 13th century. It's about the, the, the Christian reconquest of Mallorca from the Moors who had ruled Mallorca for well over three, three centuries. And it was, it was a hard, bloody time. Uh, bloody in, in the sense of, 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 of gore and, uh, and guts and mass killings. So how do I make a, a humor-laced uh, story out of that? Well, it isn't really humor-laced, but it, it has humorous elements that happened in it. And again, it's, it's just the way that it came out as I told the story. It's based on, on fact, it's based on the history, which is well documented about this young King James of, of Aragon in northern Spain. And I then had to weave a fictional story through the factual one by inventing fictional characters who may have been there, or people like them may have been there. And the fictional character that I hang it on is, is a young guy who happened to be 21, same age as the king, but from a diametrically opposite background, a, a peasant. And so, again, I started that one off. I never have a plot, ever. I don't know what's going to happen next. That's the way, the way it works. That's going back to that old jazz thing, improvisation. You know, it's, it's the way my mind works. So now the work is on to, to find a publisher because obviously it's a, it's, it's a new direction and it's a direction in which the existing publishers don't handle. So here I am again, after whatever it is, 11 years, starting off afresh. Is that, how do you feel about that? It must be very exciting. It's, it's more trepidation, you know, because, because you've always got to assume that, that things might not happen. And having spent three years of my life every day writing that book, with the realisation that, that, that no publisher asked me to do it, I did it purely on spec, that there's always the risk that it might not get picked up by a publisher. But that's it, that's, that's life. It's, uh, that's, well, you've got to be a bit nuts to do the things that I've done anyway, and it's, uh, I'm still doing it. Our thanks to Peter Kerr, and for more information, visit peter-kerr.co.uk. Peter's travel writing is published by Somersdale Publishers, and his fiction is published by Accent Press. Hello, this is Georgia Twynham, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Thank you for listening to our more digestible size podcast. Don't forget, Room 16 will be available in two weeks' time. I'm Paul Tyler, and The Reading Room was produced by Johnny Hall.